Hi, my name is Sarah and I serve as the Kids Director here at Christ Community Chapel. Today I'm going to be reading from 1 John chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. My name is Ken. I'm one of the pastors here, and thanks so much for joining us. If you weren't here last week, uh, Pastor Joe gave an update on the vote to affirm him as senior pastor, Pastor Zach as lead pastor. Uh, that vote passed overwhelmingly. So without either of them up here this morning, didn't want you thinking you were dealing with a designated survivor sort of situation. <laughs> it's all good, it's all good. Uh, welcome again to Kids and Students Weekend. Uh, you're gonna hear more about you know, who we are as a church, what we offer. Uh, it's funny, I was thinking as Stacy was talking about her kids in college, uh, two of my three, we have three little girls, two of them started back at school this week, kindergarten and first grade. And so we were talking yesterday about what they're learning, what they like, and then what they want to be when they grow up. And so Kamaya, who's our first grader, I asked her, she said, I want to be a doctor. So that's respectable. Okay. Skylar, our kindergartner, not to be outdone, said, and I quote, I want to be every kind of doctor and a veterinarian, <laughs> which if you know Sky is on brand. I then asked our 17-month-old, Lily, what she wanted to be. She laughed and blew a raspberry. <laughs> so, slacker. My kids are on the front end of school, but they already are thinking about what they want to be. As a parent, I think a lot about what I want them to be, who I want them to be, what I want for them. I want them to be healthy. I want them to be successful. I want them to be well-adjusted. I want them to make good choices. I want a lot for them. If you're a parent, I bet you want a lot for your kids too. Let me ask you, what do you want most for your kids? And let me broaden that question because I know not everybody in here has kids. But if you have kids in your orbit in any way, aunt, uncle, teacher, mentor, coach. If you're a member of this church, what do you want for kids? What do you want for the next generation? Let me put it to you this way. If you could give them one thing, what would you give them? What would you give them? And I want you to hold on to your answer to that question because we're going to circle back to it a little later. But now let's turn our attention to the passage you heard read, 1 John chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. It can be found on page 961 of the Pew Bibles here, and then at the back of East Hall. Pull it up on your phone, but let's have it in front of us as we spend time in it uh, this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context for this letter more generally, the first letter of John. All right, John authored this. He's a disciple of Jesus, and he's writing this decades after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. 
And he makes clear right from the outset that he knew Jesus. He walked with him. He talked with him. This is what he writes. Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. John was there with Jesus, and now he's writing the church, specifically a church or series of churches in and around the city of Ephesus decades later. Because in his time, he has seen the birth of the new church. He's also seen some of the challenges that come with being the new Christian church. And so he's writing this church. Why is he writing this church? He's writing them to remind them of what is true. To remind them of what is true. As one author put it, he is writing to destroy the false assurance of the counterfeit and confirm the right assurance of the genuine. That's why he's writing this. So with that, let's zoom in on the passage today. And as we do so, I'm going to offer three points to guide our time. Number one, two ways that kids are really good. Number two, two ways that good things can become gods. And number three, the way forward. All right? Two ways that kids are really good, two ways that good things can become gods and the way forward. Let's start with two ways. There are many ways, but let's talk about two ways that children are really good. All right, here's, here's the first way that kids are really good for us. They, they make us less selfish, don't they? There's nothing like having someone who depends on you to take the focus off of yourself and on to them. They make us less selfish. We adopted all three of our daughters. And the night that our oldest, Kamaya, was born, we actually had the privilege of being at the hospital. My wife, Jamie, was actually in the delivery room when Kamaya was born. I was sleeping in the back seat of our car in the parking garage. The kid's not even born yet, and she's changing the way I sleep. That hasn't changed, by the way. And then... She enters the world, and for the next couple days in the hospital, it is, of course, all about her. Then we get ready to take her home. We put her in the car seat for the first time. We check it 87 times. And then I proceed to drive about 23 miles per hour in the slow lane on the highway all the way home, glaring at anybody who comes within like half a mile of us. Kids change you. They take the focus off of you. You do things differently because of them. You sleep differently, you drive differently, you spend your time differently, you spend your money differently. Can I get an amen? amen? They make you less selfish. That's one way they're really good for you. Here's the second way kids are really good for you. They are a really good way, maybe the best way of understanding how God feels about us. Time and time again in scripture, we are told that God is not just a father, but a good father. In fact, John says it just a couple of chapters earlier. Chapter three, verse one, this is what he writes. See what kind of love the father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Galatians four, Romans eight. I could go on and on. Time and time again, we are reminded that he is a good father, and we, his children. 
I mentioned that I sleep differently now, still sleep differently now because of our kids. I feel like our bed is basically shared property with our, with our daughters. Even bedtime is tough. It's like a game of whack-a-mole in the Perbucky household. You put one down, another pops up. You put that one down, another pops up. And Skylar, our middle daughter, is, I will say, uniquely equipped to make bedtime challenging. So it seems as though the moment her head hits the pillow, every single question she's had all day needs to be answered right now. So we'll be there in the dark. I think we're doing just fine. And then I'll hear, Dad, I have a question. I'm like, I have an answer. It's bedtime. <laughs> then, Dad, I'm, I'm cold. I need socks. Dad, I'm hot. I need to take one sock off. These are real examples, by the way. This is not hyperbole. Dad, I'm hungry. I need a snack. Dad, I have another question. Dad, would you cuddle me? Dad, you're cuddling me too tight. Dad, would you just put one arm over me? Dad, remove your arm. Dad, sit next to the bed. Put an arm up. Dad, move across the room. Dad, I have another question. (laughs) And I'm about to lose my mind. But every once in a while, every once in a while, in the midst of all of that, she'll turn over, she'll look at me, and she'll say, Dad, I love you. And in that moment, all of the questions, all of the tossing and turning, it all melts away. And I just see this precious little girl that I love dearly. If you're wondering how God feels about you, just know that there's no amount of tossing and turning. There's no amount of questions, no amount of requests, no amount of mistakes that could in any way diminish his love for you. He loves you. And kids are a really good reminder of how he feels about us. So they make us less selfish. They remind us of how God sees us. Those are the ways that they are really good. Now I want to talk about ways that we can actually twist those good things into something that's not so good. That's my second point. Look with me at verse 21 of chapter 5. This is what John writes. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now in the original Greek, the word keep is, is really more like be on guard. So what John is saying is be on guard against idols. And I know the idea of an idol feels outdated, might bring to mind a little stone statue that you bow down to. And sure, it could be that, but it's not just that. In fact, in the original language, the word idol really brings to mind shadows or phantoms, things that really don't have substance. They're fleeting, they're temporary, they have no staying power. And if that's how you understand an idol, I think it could expand the definition a bit. So let's think of idols this morning as something that we worship, and by worship I mean maybe not bowing down physically, but certainly bowing down in your head, in your heart, chasing, pursuing, finding your ultimate meaning and purpose, your hope, something that you worship that isn't worth worshiping because it's a shadow, a phantom, it's temporary, it's fleeting. And under that definition, lots of things can be idols, can't they? I have some examples I think will be up on the screen behind me. Can we put that up? 
Money. None of us have ever struggled to make that an idol, I'm sure. How about the next one? What does this represent? I need some audience participation here. Come on, people. (laughs) Success, career, sure. Chasing that corner office. How about this one? Aw, love. Love can absolutely be an idol. And here's the thing about these three images, these three things. They're not bad in and of themselves, but if we put everything into them, they become something they weren't meant to be. What about this one? You better, ooh and ah, those are my kids. (laughs) You know how hard it is to make three small children look at the camera at the same time? All right, there they are, and they are adorable, but this right here is the first way a good thing can become a God. We can make kids an idol. Let me ask you this. How much time and energy, thought and focus go into your kids or kids in whom you're investing, kids in your orbit? Do you find your purpose and your meaning in your kids? This is tough for me. Maybe it's tough for you too. Because if the good thing about kids is that they make us less selfish, then the danger is that we can elevate kids to something they were never supposed to be. And there are very real problems with putting kids at the center, with making kids an idol. Here's the first one. It knocks God off the throne. And full stop, that's bad enough. But here's another problem. Kids who are treated like they're the center of the universe may well come to believe it. And so they begin to idolize themselves. Here's the third problem. Kids simply cannot bear the weight of our expectations. They can't bear the sum total of our hopes and dreams, our meaning, our purpose. They can't do it. It will crush them. Who here has a perfect kid? And if your kids are here, blink once for yes and twice for no. (laughs) Who here has a perfect kid? And not everyone in here is a parent, and I know that. But everyone in here is somebody's kid. And I'm willing to bet that some of you bear the scars of expectation from your parents expectations you just couldn't live up to. Really, some real problems with making kids the idol. There's a second way that we can twist a good thing into a not-so-good thing. Can we put up this next slide? Oh, look at that handsome devil. (laughs) This is not the way I dress normally. I want you to know that. Uh, This is kids' camp, and when they tell you to help at kids' camp, you help at kids' camp. You don't ask questions, so this is Roman soldier can. But this is the second way a good thing can become a not-so-good thing. We, we can live to serve our kids, of course, but we can, also, we can also live in such a way that we expect our kids to live to serve us. Let, let me give you an example from the book of Bad Parenting, authored by Pastor Ken, all right? My kids don't always behave. Shocker. I don't always respond well to their misbehavior, And there are moments when I'm frustrated, I'm getting impatient, my blood pressure is ticking up. And I gotta tell you, in that moment, I'm less concerned with them doing the right thing 
and more concerned with them doing my thing, the thing I want them to do. Because I'm the boss, I'm the authority, I am the sole arbiter of right and wrong. What I say goes. You do what I say and you do it now. If we're not careful, we can teach our kids not just to view us as authority figures, but as the sole authority. The ones who make all of the rules, the sole arbiters of right and wrong. Who does that sound like? For me, less like dad and more like God. And there are very real problems with putting ourselves at the center, with expecting our kids to serve us in this way. First of all, it redirects glory and worship that belongs to God to us, makes us glory thieves. But second, just as our kids can't bear the weight of our expectations, we can't bear the weight of theirs either. I asked you a moment ago, who in here has a perfect kid? Let me ask you, who in here is a perfect parent? Not me. Who hasn't disappointed, frustrated, hurt their kids? And again, some of you know this not as parents, but as kids. That as you sit here today, you remember the moment you realize that your parent, your parents were not who you thought they were. Kids are good, they're really good. But if we're not careful, we can make them something they weren't supposed to be We can make ourselves something we weren't supposed to be. And in so doing, we offend God, we harm them, and we hurt ourselves. Good things can become God's. So what do we do? How do we move forward from that? Well, that's our third point. Look with me at verse 20. This is what John writes. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Three things here in this verse I want to point out. I'm gonna work really in reverse. I'm gonna start at the end of the verse. Number one, that word true. John uses the word true three times in this verse. The Greek The Greek word here, alethinos, is best translated not so much as correct, but as real. Real. Remember, right from the outset, John is is making clear that Jesus was flesh and blood, that he has seen, heard, looked upon, touched. John is a fan of juxtaposition. He'll take two things and he'll hold them up against each other for contrast. And here, here he is juxtaposing the truth, the realness of Jesus against the phantoms, the shadows that are idols. The truth, the realness of Jesus versus the fleeting, temporary shadows, phantoms of idols. If you're here and you're not a Christian, just, just know that the Jesus that, for, that, that forms the foundation of the Christian faith is not an idea or a concept 
not a fable, a fairy tale. He was and he is very real. But not just that, not just real, but that he has come. That's what John says, he has come. God made flesh living among us. Living a sinless life in our place. Whereas we could never hold up under the weight of other people's expectations. We could never stand firm. We, we crumble under the hopes and dreams and meaning and purpose that other people pour into us, that we pour into others. Jesus always stood firm. He never let anyone down. He never left an expectation unmet. And then in dying in our place, despite being sinless, blameless, perfect, he took on himself every expectation we haven't met, every hope that we haven't met, every time that we have bowed to something in our minds, in our hearts, to something that isn't Jesus. Every act of idolatry, he died for that. Every time I, every time you chase something, put something at the center that wasn't him, money, career, love, relationships, kids, self, he died for that. And then in raising from the dead, proving that we can trust him, that he is He is the one and only thing that we can put our hope, our expectation, our meaning, and our purpose in. He is, as John says, the true God and eternal life. Jesus is real. He has come. And third, we can know him. Not just in an intellectual sense to perceive his realness, but to be in relationship with him. We can be part of the family of God because of the finished work of Jesus. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called sons of God and so we are. Because of Jesus, we are. And in light of this, John warns us, it's, it's the way he, he lands this plane in 1 John. He warns us to keep ourselves, to be on guard against idols because idols die, they decay, they disappoint. Kids aren't perfect, parents aren't perfect, we're not perfect, but Jesus is. He is real, he has come, we can know him, he is alive and reigning eternally on the throne. That's the good news of the gospel. So let's get back to the question I asked you at the outset of our time together. If you could give the next generation one thing, what would it be? Let our answer be John's answer, to know him who is true, the true God and eternal life. Let's agree as a church to reject the idolatry that threatens to pull our eyes off of Jesus and to turn to him who is true, only Jesus, only Jesus. And let's be a church that teaches our kids about Jesus, that puts him at the center, that points our kids to him. The only one who won't die, won't decay, won't disappoint. 
There's an Old Testament passage that puts this charge beautifully. It's gonna be on the screen behind me. It is Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine. In the preceding chapter, God has given the Israelites the 10 commandments and this is what's written next. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. As we close our time together, let's consider a couple of things. Number one, what are your idols? Who are your idols? What are mine? What phantoms or shadows are you chasing even now? They can't hold up, they won't hold up. Cast them aside, look to Jesus, the true God and eternal life. Number two, are we living out the language of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9? Are we teaching our kids diligently? Are we making the topic of Jesus a constant conversation when we get up, when we rise, when we lay down, when, when we're in the orbit of kids? Again, not just as a parent, but as someone, as a church that wants to point kids to Jesus. Are we taking that charge seriously? And third, are we confusing good things with God. I mentioned at the beginning that I want a lot of things for my kids, and they're good things. It's okay to want good things for your kids. The problem is, there are a lot of things that the world will tell us that are ultimate when it comes to our kids. That the one thing we should want is for them to be successful, to be well-adjusted, to be good citizens, to be kind, to be generous, and those are good things. We should want those things for our kids. They might even point to and glorify Jesus, but those good things are not God. The reality is that there are plenty of kind, generous, well-adjusted, successful people out there who don't give a rip about Jesus. They're chasing idols of their own. And when we confuse good things with God, we may well be giving our kids idols of their own to pursue too. Don't confuse good things with God. As a, as a parent, I pray differently now. I pray a lot more now. <laughs> and I pray differently. And a couple weeks ago, uh, Jamie and I were praying for our girls. It had been a tough week and just praying through some things that each of our girls was facing. And in our prayer, just felt convicted to pray in a way that I don't pray enough. To yes, pray for good things, but to pray for Jesus most. To pray for Jesus most. That they'd have Jesus, that they would know him 
Because all the good things in the world mean nothing if they don't have him. So let's give our kids Jesus. Only Jesus, the true God and eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, you are a good father and we know this because you sent your son to live in our place, to die in our place and to raise again from the dead, giving us hope of relationship with you and life eternal. We confess as a church that so often we have taken our eyes off of you, Jesus. We have pursued shadows and phantoms, things that aren't you. We confess that, Holy Spirit, write our minds, write our hearts, fix our eyes on Jesus, only Jesus, and let us be a church that points this next generation to Jesus too. No one else, nothing else, only him. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus.